It's Twin Bills, the Red Sox podcast from the sports department of the Providence Journal, featuring Red Sox beat writer Bill Koch, along with sports editor Bill Corey. Now, Twin Bills. Hello and welcome to this week's Twin Bills Red Sox podcast. This is Bill Corey, sports editor of the Providence Journal. I'm with our Red Sox writer, Bill Koch. As we count down the waning days of this Red Sox season, Bill, uh, by my calendar here, I think they got about three weeks or so to play. Uh, and um, I, I want to start off by uh, sort of touching upon what you wrote about for today's journal, and that's basically why are these guys playing? Obviously, they're playing because they are major leaguers, and there's a schedule that says you have to play games. But right. <laughs> besides that... The, the paycheck doesn't hard. hurt either. Right. Well, certainly. But besides that, you know, you know there's going to be no postseason. You, you, are, uh, you, know, you are in the midst of one of the worst seasons of all time. Uh, as I look at our standings here this morning on a Friday, September 11th, the Red Sox stand at uh, 16 and 29, uh, occupying the familiar basement that they've been in all season long. Yeah. Uh, but your, uh, your story today, I thought, was interesting because it talked about, you know, the personal motivations for some of these guys. And you touch upon Rafi Devers and Dahlback. Um, it must be hard for these guys, I think, to kind of uh, come to the ballpark and uh, sort of uh, try and perform when they know uh, there is no postseason this year, when they know that this team essentially is not the team that the, the organization is going to use going forward. Um, but uh, but they're still pros, right, Bill? And they still need to sort of come and, and uh, put their best step, uh, best foot forward. Um, what, what, what's your take on it when you're up there when they're playing at home? I mean, what's what do you what do you what's the vibe you get from talking to some of these? Well, guys? I think I think the essence of being a professional is is sometimes doing the work when you don't want to do it or, or when it's not fun to do it. Right. Um, you know, I, I like to say to my friends, this this job that I have, it's a great job. And, and it's something that I always wanted to do. And I would say that maybe 90% of the time I feel like I'm stealing money. The other 10% <laughs> I'm actually earning. Right. Um, you know, and every once in a while I'll, I'll send a text to my buddy Eris and I'll say, man, I am earning today. Like this well, is one of probably, those days. There's probably been a lot of earning this summer if you're covering the Red Sox beat because, the, you know, it, there's not a lot of great baseball. You know there's going to be no postseason glory. And, you know, you're looking at a lot of guys who are not going to be with this team moving forward. You're, never, you're probably never going to see a lot of these guys again. And so the, the players, I would assume, know that as well. Like, like playing in a season like 2018 where you win 108 games and you go to the playoffs and you were in the World Series, that's yeah. fun. That's a year that you dream about forever. Those days go by so fast. You're so excited to get to the ballpark every day. Right. Um, you know, even taking BP in the heat in like Texas or Houston can feel like fun because you're winning that night. Sure. You know everything's going well. Yeah. You're probably playing well personally. Um, and so I was intrigued by it. They made Xander Bogarts available to us uh, Thursday mm. prior to the game. And I look at someone like Bogarts and I see a quintessential winner, uh, someone who's won two World Series and four division titles in Boston. And, and really, that's all he knows right. um, is winning. Now, he's finished last a couple times, but that was earlier in his career when he was a younger player. Right. Um, 16, 17, and 18, they win the AL East. 19, they're still above 500, and it looks like they have enough pieces to contend again right. in 2020. So I think for someone like him, it's got to be particularly jarring, the fact that you have two or three weeks left in the year and you are going nowhere, and everybody knows it. You were a seller at the deadline, and everyone knew that you would be. Yeah. Um, and he talked about the importance of continuing to grind every day and to try to take up this unfamiliar role of spoiler, which is what the Red Sox are in right now. Their series remaining are against the Rays, the Marlins, the Yankees, the Orioles, and Atlanta, five teams who are in postseason contention. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so it's up to the Red Sox to put their best foot forward while getting a look at the younger guys and still give an honest effort um, you know, to maintain the integrity of, of some pennant races here. You know, we're both old enough to remember when the when the Red Sox uh, were not very good and uh, had many seasons where they weren't in contention. Sure. Uh, I don't quite remember them being quite this bad, although there were some years there in the 90s where the, <laughs> they were pretty bad. You know, the, the closest <clears throat> thing that 
that I can remember to this recently was the Bobby Valentine dumpster fire. The, yeah. The one year. I, I mean, yeah, that yeah. was just doomed from the start. You, you <laughs> got the feeling when, when Dustin Pedroia came out, I think it was in the first or second week of the year, and, and, and said something to the effect that that's not the way we do things around here. Yeah. Uh, you knew that there were serious problems there. But, you know, otherwise, I, I, I can't really remember feeling as hopeless about a Red Sox team as I did so early, like right. this year. Right, that's the thing. It was it was kind of over early because you kind of saw after about three weeks or four weeks of play that this team was really not very good. Right. And uh, they weren't, there wasn't going to be a whole lot of help coming uh, for a lot of reasons. The one is, the one big one obviously is the shortened season and things are just done differently this year. Uh, so, um so as we look forward, let's talk a little bit about the makeup of this team and some of the recent changes here that we've seen. Uh, one of the one of the more recent changes which happened uh, this past week is uh, Andrew Benintendi has been uh, shut down for the year. Never quite right this year uh, at the plate. Uh, obviously hurt himself, and there's no rush to get him back. But when you look at his stats for this year, it's really stark. You know, I think he's gotten into 39 games. I think he had a total of four hits. 14 games, 39 at-bats. 39 at-bats, I'm sorry. 39, 39 right, right. 14 games, 39 at-bats, hitting a, a whopping 103. Uh, so, and, and we've touched upon this before, Bill, but, you know, what's up with Andrew Benintendi? It's a huge question for them going into next year. Uh, you know, this is a guy who, when he's drafted, top 10 draft pick out of Arkansas, uh, you looked at someone with a, a pretty full skill set, yeah. uh, someone with a beautiful swing who had the potential to hit for 20 home runs a year, steal 20 bases in a given year, hit 40 doubles in a given year, could play above average defense at all three outfield positions. Yep. Yep. Where is Andrew Benintendi now going into 2021? I, I don't think that's a question the Red Sox anticipated asking uh, as recently as two years ago in 2018 when he was a big part of those World Series champions. Uh, but he has been in decline offensively. Um, since that season, uh, had an 8.30 OPS in 2018. Um, you know, didn't homer as much, but you know, still the doubles went way up from 26 to 41. So the extra base pop still there. Yep. Last year, you put him in the leadoff spot. It's a failed experiment. I, I guarantee you, it got in his head for a while until they flipped the lineups and, and the season sort of got away from him and, and he couldn't get it back. Um, this year. Four hits, only one of them out of the infield. Yeah, a double. Yeah, um, you know, bunt single and, and two infield singles, and he gets hurt in a rundown against Tampa Bay. He strains his right rib cage, and he's out for the year. And and really, uh, you look at next year; they already have him signed. They avoided arbitration with a two-year deal. He's under team control again in 2022, and then after that, he hits free agency as a 28-year-old. You're wondering. Um, you know where you would go forward with this guy because I, I think if he had stayed on the same track that he was on in 2017 and 2018, this would have been a player that you would have looked at trying to buy out his last couple arbitration yeah. years and and extend him until he's 32, 33 oh, years old. I, you know, if if you went by those first couple of seasons and what you saw in sort of a steady progression, you know, you were looking at him. At least I was looking at him as well. This is this is the next left fielder here. Mm-hmm. This is the left fielder of the future. You know, I mean. Uh, defensively, he's pretty good. He's certainly no JBJ, but uh, in left field and Fenway, he's certainly more than adequate. No, more than capable. Uh, and and uh, that obviously that is a position where you expect production. Mm-hmm. Red Sox have historically had great production from that position. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it, it was really uh, disappointing to see what's happened to this kid over the last couple of seasons. Now, look, you know, it doesn't mean that uh, he can never recapture that. But it's been a couple of it's been a couple of years since since we saw that version of Andrew Benintendi. Hopefully, he comes back in camp uh, in spring training healthy. Um, you know, maybe he figures things out. Maybe he gets to work with a hitting coach or something. But it just seemed like there was way too much potential there for him to sink this low. It's not to say that he's, he's going to you know hit three fifteen with twenty five thirty bombs every year. But you know, one oh three. You know, it's it's uh, disappointing. Yeah, a couple couple things to look at. Obviously, first, we're still talking about a young player. He's 26. Right. Um, you know, so there is time for him to get it back. You, you figure if all goes according to plan, he's going to play in the big leagues for another nine or ten years. Um, so you hope that, that this is just a, you know, a lapse in, in that sort of 
that track that he was on. Yep. Um, I think the most concerning thing for me, Bill, is is I look back at, at 2018 into 2019, and I think about some of the changes he made to his body. He, he put on some muscle. He was trying uh, to become a more powerful player yep. at the plate. Um, I think he might have sacrificed some of that athleticism that, that attracted the Red Sox to him in the first place um, because this was a guy who was – in my mind, he was above average at everything. I don't know if he had one great tool. Uh, I mean, the swing is beautiful. The bat-to-ball skills were, were, were really good coming out of college. Yep. Um, guy who skipped AAA entirely, if you remember. Oh, when that's right. Called up in 2016. That's right. I had forgotten about that. Right. He came right up from AA. Um, so somebody who they saw a lot of potential in. Yeah. Um, and I think he sort of got caught up in this three-true-outcome era of home run strikeouts walks where he's trying to go deep a little bit more and, and trying to be a little bit more impactful and yeah. you know I think in gaining that weight and changing his body I, I think he lost some of that all-around athleticism some of that dynamism that that he had as a younger player yeah. as someone who was a rookie and then into 2017 and 2018 and I think this year he was trying to get back to that he he had noticeably lost you know maybe about 10 pounds going into spring training mm-hmm. Um, said that he wanted to, to get back to the player who he was and, and not necessarily chase home runs and, right. and let them happen a little more organically. Um, and then I think what you saw in, in these games in July uh, particularly and then in August was he just lost his swing completely. And, and I think it was, you know, there were mechanical things going on there that, that just weren't working for him. Mm-hmm. And when you're in the midst of a season to try and make major changes and, and get that back, it's really hard. You, you don't have days off. Right. You don't have time to get it grooved in. Um, Ron Renicky said that, that he hopes that Benintendi just forgets that this year ever happened. Yeah, and I, I really right. think that <laughs> I really think that some selective amnesia on his part w- would be really beneficial here because you know th- when you look at the line, you know Kevin Millar always used to talk about you look at the back of the baseball card and that's who the guy is yeah. going forward. And you know my stats are going to be whatever they are in April and in May, but by the end of the year, that's, that's, I'm going to be that guy. Right, that's who you are. Who's been there for the last six or seven years. If Ben Intendi's looking at his baseball card and he looks at 2019 and 2020, he's going to be a frustrated guy. Sure, sure. Yeah, especially this year. It really didn't get on track, and then obviously it ended with injury. Uh, so the hard part here is when we're talking about the Red Sox going forward, you don't really know the pieces that are going to be there. Uh, there's been some recent move, movement. Obviously, uh, one of the one of the uh, more recent ones is uh, uh, Chavis has been uh, sent out to the outfield. Um Again, you know, my question to you about Mike, uh, Michael Chavis is: um, is this a is this a is this a building block for the Red Sox, or is this somebody who, you know, they may deal away at the uh, off season or the, the the next deadline? I mean, you know, he came up with such fanfare. I remember uh, last year was it last year he he debuted last year, and uh, you know, had an offensive uh, kind of uh, punch impact when he when he first uh, hit the big leagues. This year, he's just um, you know, hitting around 225, a uh, couple of home runs, nothing particularly great. He's had some, uh, let's say, mental lapses in the field, and now he's out in the outfield. Um, you know, again, is it too early to pass judgment on, on this kid? Uh, do we? Do you think of him as somebody who the Red Sox are going to continue to build around? Because, I mean, they moved him out of that second base position. Maybe they wanted to get a look at, at uh, Arroyo and see what uh, what they had there. But I don't know. Like last year, you would have asked me about Michael Chavis, and I would have said, oh, yeah, he's, he's going to be there for a while. You, you're sort of squeezing him into a position to begin with when you put him at second base. He, he's not necessarily a second baseman. Yeah. Um, you know, as he said when he was drafted out of high school in, in Georgia, he didn't really have a position. He played shortstop, but it's generally you, you put your best athlete, your best player at shortstop or in center field, or you pitch him. And, right. and that's sort of how baseball works at the younger levels. Um, you know, coming up, they were using him as a third baseman. Raphael Devers explodes. He's not going to play third base in, in Boston. Right. Um, you know, so now you're looking at, at a way to try to get his bat into the Red Sox lineup. And, and last year they started playing him on the right side at Pawtucket at second base and, and at first base. Um, the long-term absence of Dustin Pedroia has left this team searching for, for a long-term replacement at second base. Uh, we can get into that a, a little bit more in a couple minutes. Yeah. Um, you know, but Chavis, I, I think, 
you move him to second base. You bring in Jose Peraza. Uh, you move Chavis to left field because Benintendi's out, and you're going to play Yairo Munoz there, and and you know a few other guys, and you want to get a look at Christian Arroyo at second, and you know he just feels like a guy who, unless he's hitting, he's not going to be in the lineup because yeah. they don't value him defensively a- at all. Well, they, they've and I don't know if this is more their fault or his inability, but they've they've moved him around quite a bit. He this, has he hasn't really had a chance to kind of settle in. He's played first, he's played third a little bit, he's played second. Now he's in the outfield. You know, I always wondered about that with a young player. It's one thing if you've got somebody who's kind of a versatile player, who's a little bit more of a veteran and has been able to kind of, you know, do that. But as a young player trying to get established, I have to wonder if it's hard to just feel like you're the guy without a position. Well, I, I mean, he's certainly not going to DH for this team with, with J.D. Martinez on the team. I think they really hurt Blake Swihart in that way. You know, they, they were trying to develop him as a catcher after he was an infielder in, in high school. Yep. Um, you know, and then all of a sudden they have him playing left field and he gets hurt playing left field. Yep. And, you know, at that point, Christian Vasquez sort of established himself as the catcher and they bring in Sandy Leone and it, it's looking like those two guys are going to play there and Swihart sort of got pushed out. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I wonder the same thing about Chavis. I, I wonder the same thing about just baseball generally. Uh, Mookie Betts started at second base for the Dodgers last night. And and I look at Mookie Betts, and I see the best right fielder in the game, somebody who was an infielder in a past life, and, and I right. know he still takes ground balls and you know would still be willing to play there, and, and it was his idea to do it. But he's the best right fielder in the game. You're, you're trying to be too clever by half in a lot of these instances. And, and when you hear about... You know, managers and executives talking about position versatility. Oh, I mean, yeah, that's a wonderful thing, and, yeah. and it's great to be able to play multiple spots. But what about allowing a guy to play one spot well, and and allowing him to get established and and get comfortable? I yeah. I think I think there's there's been a loss. You know, maybe in in sort of trying to maximize value of players. You know, maybe there's there's been a loss in you know allowing a player to, to sort of get comfortable and, and gain a feel for a certain spot and you know particularly with Chavis when you change his position uh, after calling him up to the big leagues essentially right and you ask him to learn to play second base on the fly in the big leagues um, you know it's you're doing him a disservice and, and now you're going to move him to the outfield on top of that I I, I have to wonder how that affects. You know his his production at the plate, his outlook coming to the ballpark every day. It, yeah. It's just it's not necessarily something that that I would do. I don't necessarily think that it's conducive to developing a player to fostering confidence in a player. You know, I think uh, if you are a Red Sox fan or a follower of the team, you were spoiled a little bit because you had a solid second baseman for so long in Dustin Pedroia. That's essentially over. Uh, and now, you know, they're kind of scrambling a little bit to try and figure out what they're going to do with that. I mean, they had, obviously, uh, Chavis there for a little bit. Then they had uh, Peraza, who uh, started out the year doing pretty well. He's been uh, optioned down to the alternate training site in Pawtucket now. He hasn't really been hitting at all. Right. Um, and so you're seeing a lot of this sort of turnover and fl- and, and uncertainty at that position. Uh, and, and you know, in a lot of ways, that's a that's a tough position because you expect some offense, but not a whole lot. You certainly expect a lot of defense. And when Dustin Pedroia was in his prime, you certainly got both for a long for a long time. Yeah, you had an 800 plus OPS, uh, a, a guy who you know was a rookie of the year in the MVP his first two seasons. Yeah. Um, you know, won um, you know won a couple World Series and and was a big factor on this team. Uh, the last four years of that eight-year extension are, are essentially going to be a wash. Uh, you know, yeah, who'd have, who'd have thunk that, man? Four years. You know, I, I mean, I certainly, I, th- I think I and a lot of other people were expecting, well, you know, those last the last two years there are probably going to be dead money, but it, man, it's four years. Uh, they owe him $12.125 million in, in 2021 uh, in terms of the luxury tax or the competitive balance tax, sorry. <laughs> uh, his average annual value is 13.75. Oh, so man. he's on your books for for almost 14 Big mil. chunk for one more year. Yeah. Um, and, and realistically, the best thing that he could do to help this team ever again would be to retire. I, I said that last year, and, and yeah. I'll say it again. Um, you know, it, it's just, it's really unfortunate the way it's ended for him here. Um, unable to play the, the sort of ultimate grinder that he was to, to be felled by this left knee injury, by yeah. a, a dirty slide by Manny Machado, started all this in Baltimore. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and just have him be so ineffective 
uh, over this, you know, what should have been the twilight years of his career, he's going to end up playing nine games in four seasons. Mm. Uh, unless they bring him back next year for a one for game. A little farewell off, thing. Whatever. Yeah. Then it'll be yeah. 10 games in four seasons. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, but that has affected their ability to sure. fill that position going forward. There, there was sort of that veteran deference that, that Alex Carr was trying to pay to him. It, it was, he was trying to be very respectful of the fact that Pedroia was a veteran and an established player and a, yeah. a key part of the Red Sox. And he, he was always careful to make sure that he mentioned him as part of the second base picture and mentioned that he had a future. And, and we haven't necessarily talked about Pedroia at all this year. And, and so I think that's probably indicative of where Ron Renicki stands on that, where the organization stands on that. Right. Uh, Pedroia's at home in Arizona with his wife and their three kids and mm-hmm. you know, doesn't really have any plans on coming back to Boston anytime soon. Um, we don't even really know if he's working out in terms of baseball activities. It, it, it's, it's a question as to whether or not he can. Yeah. Um, you know, and so I think the Red Sox might look at that spot and think, we've already spent our money there. Um, you know, so realistically, how are we going to fill this in? They mm-hmm. make a play for Peraza. He was non-tendered by the Reds. They offer him a one-year deal for three million. They they decided that Peraza, at six years younger than Brock Holt, and and theoretically was going to be cheaper than Brock Holt, and he was because they didn't have to give him a team option for yep. 2021. Yep. Uh, they brought him in and thought that there might be some upside there. Uh, they grabbed Jonathan Arauz, uh in the Rule Five draft mm-hmm. from Houston and, and thought that he could be. You know, sort of a super utility guy who could play a little second base. They had Chavis there. They claimed Christian Arroyo, who, when High and Bloom was in Tampa, they traded for Christian Arroyo from the Giants. He was their number one prospect, a former first round pick. He's 25 years old. So you're buying more runway. You're buying more time. You're, you're winding the clock back from Brock Holt, who's 32. Yeah. And a lot of these, because of their payroll situation and, and because of what they've already committed to Pedroia, they're just stopgap measures and they're hoping that they hit on one of them. They're, they're glorified lottery tickets yeah. and they've all gone bust. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're basically trying anybody and everybody. I think I'm playing in the Marlin, Marlins game. Are you I, really? I penciled, they pencil me in for second base. Well, you day. get a trip to Miami out of it. It's pretty good. <laughs> Pretty good. Yeah, really. Uh, but you know it, that that side of the infield is, is now going to be now a big question mark. Obviously, uh, yeah. they, they dealt away uh, Moreland, uh, yeah. who I like. We both liked, uh, but we uh, I think both agreed not really a, a building block for for going forward here. When you're a seller, that's the type <clears throat> of guy that you move. Sure, you got some value for him, absolutely. Yep. Uh, and and they've had uh, Bobby Dahlback uh, sort of manning the position. I don't know if that's where he's going to be next year, or you know, but. Uh, Offensively, he's been doing pretty well. I mean, he's had, uh, I think, six home runs in 10 games. Um, uh, You know, um, I think he's been okay at first base. uh, But it's hard to know what that side of the infield is going to look like moving forward. I mean, the other side, you pretty much know. You've got Devers and and Bogarts there. Uh, But there's so much uncertainty almost everywhere else. I mean, you're not going to have Benintendi. Um, well, you didn't, you didn't have Benintendi this year. Who knows? Who knows next year? Right. Who, what's up with JBJ? I, and and you know, I, I make note of you the story you had. Uh, I don't know if it was this week or last week when um, uh, the, the, the I forget which Red Sox official said, but you know, they said, oh, you know, we we want. I was probably I think it was Heim Bloom. Heim Bloom. It was right after the trade deadline. Right. It was saying, you know, we we'd like to have uh, JBJ here for a long time going forward. And JBJ said, well, that's news to me. Yeah. You wonder, you know, what was uh, what behind those comments. Um, <clears throat> obviously, we've talked about the situation with um, JD Martinez. Is he going to opt out? Is he going to stay? So there's so much uncertainty in really all the positions. I mean, I, th- I think Christian Vasquez pretty much <clears throat> they haven't moved him, so he's going to be here for a little while. I think, um, but uh, just you know. Who knows what the Red Sox team is going to look like when they report to uh, to Fort Myers in 2021 if everything gets going the way it's expected to get going? I, I think, you know, and, and this was a question posed the other day uh, by Red Sox Stats, a, a great follow on Twitter, um, you know, was looking at trying to project the 40-man roster for next year. Uh, Jackie Bradley Jr. is really your one true free agent, um, the one guy who, who's going to be able to hit the market yeah. for nothing. You traded everybody up, um, <clears throat> right? You, know, you moved, you moved Workman. Um, you know, you let all the guys walk away without signing the one-year deals. You, you could non-tender some guys 
who are arbitration eligible. That that's certainly on the table. Right. Um, well, you have the question mark with JD Martinez too. Right. He could opt out as well. Yeah. That's right. Uh, but you're looking at your 40 man, and you're looking at some guys who are Rule Five eligible. Whether it's Jay Groom, Tanner Houck, Brian Matta, uh, Hudson Potts, Jason Rosario, Connor Siebold, and Connor Wong. All four of those guys you just traded for. Yep. So it stands to reason that, that they're going to be placed on the 40-man. Um, and it got me to thinking. Oh, that's dangerous. Well, I know. It's it's really bad. Uh, <laughs> and, and there's been a lot of that over the last six months with the pandemic <laughs> sitting in my house alone. Or uh, when you're at the Red Sox games, yeah, looking at that. You know, some, <laughs> you know? <laughs> some, of, some of those thoughts go to dark places. But, yeah. you know, part of it is what you just said. <clears throat> sitting at the Red Sox games, looking at that. You're 16 and 29. You, you have... You know some bad contracts still, even though you are under the tax. Yeah. Um, you have some guys who who are probably closer to the end than they are to the beginning, and and so sure. you wonder. You wonder, based on what happened at the trade deadline and, and some of the speculation, uh, the comments coming from Sam Kennedy about how no one's untouchable, and the comments coming from Hyam Bloom about how if we see an opportunity to make this team better, more sustainable, more flexible going forward, we need to take advantage of it. That says to me that no one's untouchable as well. And, yep. and so maybe the broader question, Bill, is, is do we really know who Chaim Bloom values on this roster, on the 40-man? Do hmm. we really know if he likes what we consider to be their top prospects? Do we really know if he thinks that Christian Vasquez's contract is good value? Or does he consider it to be something else? Hmm. Do we really know if he thinks that Xander Bogarts' contract is good value, or would he have tried to pay him less right. or, or sees him as less than a $20 million a year player? I, I think we're making assumptions based on our evaluations of the roster, and we don't necessarily know how he sees this team yeah. internally. And, and so I think I look at, at, at the guys who are there, um, and I think of guys like Verdugo, Nick Pavetta, uh, Hudson Potts, Jason Rosario, Connor Siebold, Connor Wong. Bloom has traded for all those guys. He's paid a tangible price for all of them. So it stands mm-hmm. to reason that he likes them. Yes. Um, you know, he signed a few guys here uh, to short-term, short-money deals like Martin Perez, uh, Peraza. I, I don't think he's necessarily all that attached to those guys. You, you wouldn't say... That he is in love with those guys, you know, unless he's giving out a four or five or six year deal, you then you would assume that he's committed to that player. Sure. Um, but realistically, I don't think we know well enough how he sees this group of Red Sox players to assess what they're going to do in the offseason. Hmm. Mm. No, you're, you're right. Um, you know, clearly he he came here with the mandate. Uh, the the uh, Red Sox ownership wanted to get uh, under the uh, competitive balance tax, um, and he's certainly worked toward that. But you're right; we don't really know because I think we've, I, I think he's sort of gone through that first wave where he's dealt away the players where he felt okay, we can get some value, we can save some. Now we're, I think you're right. Now we're going to start seeing okay, how does he view these players now? Where you know he's he doesn't have to get rid of them because of the finances, but he wants to start putting his stamp on this team, you know. And, and I think you could argue he started to do that already, but I think we're going to really start seeing that in the off season now. I think phase one was get us below the competitive balance tax, get some value for the players that uh, you know clearly we can get some value for. Now we're going to start seeing sort of I think the high and bloom rebuild. Uh, and we've talked about this, Bill. You know, what's the patience level? You know, can, will the fans sit, you know, for another season of you know near the cellar or in the cellar? Uh, especially if you can actually go to the games. <laughs> you know, it's one thing when you do it in a season when nobody can buy tickets. It's another thing if you're doing it in a season when the when the uh, the club is actually trying to sell tickets for you to come to the ballpark. You know, and I, I would use one player as an example for this, uh, and that's Bobby Dahlbeck, who, who has had six home runs in his first ten games. He's only the fifth player in Major League Baseball history to do that. Uh, he's the first set Red Sox re- rookie to hit home runs in five straight games. Huh. Um, you know, he accomplished that last night. Yep. Um, you know, ha- has been a, a tremendous jolt for this team, a great story. Um, someone with, with like, Paul Bunyan-esque power. Uh, yeah, right. I mean, you know, you look him at the yeah. plate, and it's just prodigious. Um, and it was neat that the uh, the revelation that he had recently, which you wrote about, and obviously it's been uh, 
uh, written about elsewhere that he's been using JBJ's bat. Yeah. How did that come about? Uh, he, he said uh, he picked it up in the cage. One yep. of the days that he was out of the lineup, he, he was in the cage of Fenway Park uh, hitting because a lot of these guys, when they're not in the lineup, they use the extra time during a game to, to take some swings, you know, maybe to watch some video if they can, if it's available. Right. Um, you know, maybe to get an extra workout in if they know they're not going to play. Um, so Dahlbeck's down in the cage, and, and Jackie Bradley happened to leave a bat there, and Dahlbeck picked it up, started to swing off the tee, and, and just liked the feel of it. Huh. Um, okay. You know, I guess he asked Jackie, he said, hey, can I, you know, can I use this going forward? And Bradley said, sure, go right ahead. Wow. Uh, I guess a lot of players at that level are, are a bit territorial about their equipment, yeah. whether it's <laughs> gloves or, or bats or whatever else. Uh, I guess fortunately for Dahlbeck and the Red Sox, Bradley's not one of those players. Um, <laughs> okay. And he said, go right ahead, kid. Yeah. Yep. Um, you know, and Bradley's been hitting the ball well, too. So he's his bats are responsible for two right. productive players in the Red Sox lineup at the moment. <laughs> um but I look at Dahlbeck, and I there were some really interesting comments that High and Bloom made the other night on with Nesson uh, before the doubleheader against the Phillies. He was asked by Tom Karen about Dahlbeck, and I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna quote him in part. Uh, he said, "Coming out of college, I think he was a very controversial player in the draft because of the possibility for the strikeouts. I think he's exceeded in some ways what people thought he would do. Maybe not the scouting staff here, but around the industry to this point in his career." Hmm. I had major red flags going up when he said that. <laughs> uh, because he, he that's essentially saying that Tampa Bay didn't rate him as a fourth-round pick in the 2016 draft. Huh. Um, and that the strikeouts being what they are in the minor leagues and, and in the big leagues right. might have been off-putting to some other places. Sure. Now, where else has High and Bloom worked? He spent right. 15 years with the Rays. Right. He's been in no that's other it. organization. Yep. Um, you know, so to say that he was a controversial player in the draft uh, and that he's exceeded what people thought he would do elsewhere in the industry. Well, where else is elsewhere? Right. It's in Tampa Bay where he worked. Um, so, <laughs> like, when, when he says something like that, I, I you know, I'm, I'm sure he doesn't mean it in a malicious way, but... Right. You know, maybe it was a point where he was a little too honest for his own good and, and essentially said to Tom Cameron, man, I didn't think this guy was going to be any good. Yeah. So considering that, if Dahlbeck ends up hitting, you know, 12 to 15 home runs, if he just goes crazy here over the last two weeks, is he moved in the offseason? Do you look at him as someone at peak value? Yeah. Bloom doesn't necessarily like to yeah. begin with. And, Good, excellent question. And yeah. he's a secondary piece in a trade with another player, and it brings back <sighs> pitching that's younger, cheaper, whatever. Somehow they move. See, this is the kind of thing that when you are a bad team right. and a seller, yeah. and your president and CEO says no player is untouchable, and you constantly say that you want to be sustainable and flexible and win championships forever and ever, mm-hmm. when you refuse to publicly commit to anyone yeah. on your roster. This is the kind of thing that you invite. It's sure. not a healthy environment no. for your players. No, you're right. It's a sort of a chaotic and maybe a very uncertain uh, healthy uh, uh, environment uh, for most of the players. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Dahlbeck is, is one of those question marks because he's certainly shown he can hit for power. Uh, he's, he's brought some production to that, to that uh, position. But you, you, just, you never know, you know? I mean... It could be that those are the those are going to be like the the ten best games that he's ever played for the Red Sox or right. whatever. It is. I mean, you, just, you know, it's so hard to know. Um, uh, you know, but who knows? He, you know, we got three more weeks here. Maybe maybe he continues on a tear and makes a case for himself to stick around. I mean, you could have made a real argument that <clears throat> that they might have tried to trade Chavis last offseason. Yeah, because he had such a great debut right. and was homering so and, frequently, yeah. and, and his value was higher then. Sure, you know that they, they, a lot of people might have argued <clears throat> that. Same thing with him, with the strikeouts and, and you know the, the, the lack of frequency in contact and, and the sort of lack of a defensive position that maybe they should have tried to move him as a secondary piece in a, in a blockbuster trade. And, and uh, you know, maybe now they've sort of missed their window unless he becomes a productive player again. Um, you know, so that's, that's sort of the calculus that the player personnel departments go through. You know, right. is this asset at a maximum? Can it help us get another asset? Um, you know, so you, you have to wonder if if he's going to come up in some discussions this offseason. So, Bill, uh, this season is fast coming to a close, the regular season anyway. I think there's something like 15 games left. 15 uh, games going into Friday night. Uh, <clears throat> so as I look at the standings this morning, I, I was um, uh, surprised to see that uh, the arch rival of the Red Sox right down the road here uh, – 
are basically fighting for their playoff lives. Uh, this this year, as you know, uh, there's going to be 16 teams that make the playoffs. The first and second place team in each division gets in, and then there's going to be two wild card teams in each in each uh, in each league. Yeah, eight teams total, right? So eight teams total. So as I look at the standings from uh, <clears throat> today in the AL East, it is the Tampa Bay Rays and the Toronto Blue Jays who are sitting on top of the division. Mm. With the Yankees in third place, so right now the Yankees are in are holding a wild card spot. Uh, in the Central, it's the White Sox and Twins. Uh, the Indians have the second. Uh, actually, the Indians have the first wild card spot right now, I believe. The Yankees have the second, mm-hmm. uh, and then out in the West, uh, Oakland A's and the Houston Astros are uh, are up there. The Mariners uh, are in third place at 19 wins. So um, you know, I suppose they they too are in the hunt, but. You know, <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago, I anointed the Yankees as they're going to win the division or, <laughs> or they're at least going to, you know, be in the top two. Uh, and they've really kind of fallen on some hard times. And now, you know, to their credit, they've been dealing with some injuries all year long. Right. Uh, but boy, Garrett Cole has not looked like the uh, the pitcher that we all thought he was going to be uh, after uh, after that big after that big deal. For folks who don't know Bill Corey and, and who are not in the studio right now, and that's all of you, uh, you, you, you don't have the pleasure of seeing the perverse glee in Bill Corey's eyes when he talks about the demise of the Yankees. Oh, I couldn't wait to talk about this. Uh, you know, no. this goes back to, to 1978 when they scarred his childhood oh, in the playoff. What a tough game. Um, you know, and, and since then, he's hated them with a passion. And, and well, I, put it this way. I, I have long respected the Yankees. Absolutely. You know, I mean, in my trips to Yankee Stadium, I, I'm always in awe of of the stadium and the team and stuff. But you know, you're right. I, we've I've switched to that mode of like when I was 12 years old, uh, or at that time eight years old, really. You know, where if the Red Sox aren't going to make it, you just root against the Yankees. That's right. That's right. <laughs> there's a there's a healthy amount of sports hate coming from Bill Corey on, on this topic. Um, you know, but you are right that that's been the story around the Yankees for the last couple of years is the injuries. Um, you know, and yeah. it, it and it does reach a point where you get to critical mass. You you've got John Carlos Stanton's on the IL again, has been for most of the year. James Paxson's on the IL. It doesn't look like he's going to come back this season. Yeah, uh, Aaron Judge is still on the IL. Gio Urshela is on the IL. Uh, Tommy Canley hasn't pitched this year and, and isn't going to. He's got a right elbow injury. Yeah. Luis Severino hasn't pitched this year oh, and isn't going to uh, because he's got a right elbow injury you know those are major major pieces for any team not just for the Yankees Um, you know and yes New York has a deep roster and you know still has enough to to get themselves into the playoffs and Mm -hmm. and it would be a major shock and and, you know something beyond a disappointment if they did not well well, you know you know that they are taking it seriously when they had Brian Cashman address the team which that that doesn't happen very often you know and that really seemed odd to me yeah uh you know you you the general manager comes in to address the team I I don't I think about previous times where you know maybe a GM would address a team before a trade deadline yeah. and say I think we have enough here guys yeah. I think you're good enough you know maybe that reassurance pep talk right. or maybe the general manager addresses the team a week before the trade deadline and says I'm going to make a couple deals I'm going to bring some guys in right. I'm not trading anyone in this <clears throat> clubhouse I'm going to move prospects and I'm going to add veterans because I think you're good enough to win right for Cashman to do that maybe a week after the deadline yeah. I, I thought was sort of oddly timed and and with the Yankees you know sort of floundering I, I thought to myself shouldn't that be Aaron Boone or, right. or a veteran player in that clubhouse shouldn't right. shouldn't the the team meeting sort of be the guys who are there every single day and and not necessarily the guys who make the decisions um, I, I found that odd a little bit, I guess. And, and you know, I guess maybe it speaks to, to the nature of 2020 and the fact that it is a short season and people are reacting and, and behaving in, in different ways. And I guess just yeah. nothing seems conventional right no, now. No, that's, that's right. I, I would say this, though. You know, uh, Brian Cashman has been the GM for the Yankees for a long time. Uh, so I think he certainly has a certain cachet that maybe some other general managers from some other organizations do not have. I mean, if Chaim Bloom were to address the Red Sox, I think it would have been a different thing because there's a new guy. You know, you've got every player there who's had a longer history with the team for the most part than he has. But Cashman has been uh, the architect of the Yankees and has done a heck of a job for a very long time. So he certainly does have uh, some standing, I think, that maybe other GMs don't have with with their own teams. But it did seem odd. You know, it did seem like a sort of a panic move when the when the GM comes down and talks to the it was talks very to the strange. team, right? 
<clears throat> but, uh, you know, it, at the very least, I think um, it's going to be an interesting last couple of weeks and postseason, uh, starting really tonight when the Yankees and the Orioles uh, face off, because um, I believe they play the Orioles tonight. Uh, the, the Orioles uh, are that team nipping them at the heels right now. Who would have seen that, right? Right. Absolutely. I mean, I think that uh, if we did our preseason predictions for the for the AL East, I think we would have had Yankees and Rays one and two, and then give me some mix of the Red Sox, uh, Orioles, and Blue Jays. Mm. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, the Orioles are uh, you know in this weird season kind of right at their heels. So it'll be an interesting weekend uh, to see what happens with that uh, with, with that series and who gets that second wild card spot. Mm. Uh, Bill, I also think it would be remiss that we don't touch upon the significance of today. Today is September 11th, um, <clears throat> and it is the um, the 19th anniversary of the terrorist bombings. Uh, you know, Bill, you and I are, are too young to remember the assassination of President Kennedy. Right. But I think that is one of those moments where uh, the country um, sort of stopped and everyone sort of remembered where they were at the time. You right. and I weren't around yet. Right. Uh, but for us, at least for me, I guess, uh, I certainly remember where I was when I heard the news uh, of the planes flying into the towers in New York City. Yeah. Uh, and it was a confusing few minutes there. You know, was it an accident? What was going on? And then it became clear what happened. Uh, it was really a, a day that uh, changed, I think, this country forever. Um, and I think that it does us all well to uh, stop and remember uh, what happened, the, the lives that were lost of innocent Americans, the heroic actions of some Americans on, uh, on planes that helped uh, 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 minimize further damage. Um, you know, but <clears throat> one of the things that I always remember, Bill, uh, is uh, how the country kind of came together mm. soon thereafter. I think politics sort of went out the window, which, yeah. which in these times that we live in seems incredible. But I remember it does seem impossible. But there was an amazing unity, uh, you know, when that happened. Uh, You know, you weren't left or right or Democrat or Republican or anything uh, else. You were basically Americans. Uh, And um, I thought our president at the time, George W. Bush, uh, really did a good job kind of leading the nation in terms of being a uniter. Uh, And uh, obviously, baseball played a uh, fairly big role in getting the country back on its feet again. Uh, I can tell you, um, at the time, I was uh, dropping off my, at the time she was probably three years old, daughter uh, at my in-laws um, because I had to go to work uh, at the journal a little later that day. Um, and that's when I heard the news. And I remember standing in their driveway with the radio on, and they came out, and we were talking about what happened and what we think could happen and who was involved. Uh, But that's a memory that is uh, seared in my mind because uh, that really uh, affected everyone's lives. I mean, everything kind of stopped for a while. Obviously, there were no uh, flights for a while. Um, And America really uh, paused, and obviously we responded. What what are your memories of of that type of that day? Um, no, I was twenty one. I uh, just finished college. I was living at home. I, I was actually just about to start my first job at the Warwick Beacon, um, but I, I hadn't wasn't working yet. Yeah. Um, my parents were at work, and my brother was at college, so I was at home alone. I got a call from one of my aunts who was in a meeting, um, and she said, "Turn on CNN. We're hearing reports of something happening in New York." Yeah. So I walked into my living room and turned on CNN, and you know, sure enough, you you see both towers burning. Um, you know, and and I guess I guess in the back of my mind, you know, growing up when I did, I, I always knew that the World Trade Center could be a target for something like that. You you think about the truck bombing in the mid '90s yeah. that, that happened there, yep. and and so it wasn't necessarily um, you know something that was completely out of left field. The fact that there could be an attack on, um, you know, some prominent American figure, yeah, some prominent American feature, right, like that. Right. But as the details came out during the day, and and you you learn that you know, these are commercial airliners that were hijacked for the purpose of flying into the towers and the Pentagon and the White House and causing 
mass death and destruction. It, it was just incomprehensible horror. Yeah. Um, it was something that you couldn't think of. Even the most creative person, the most creative writer, script writer. You didn't whoever, think a human being would be capable of, of that. It's, it's just not, it's not something that you and I sitting here, that's not a length that we would go to. Of course not. No. Um, yeah. you know, and, and so I think it, you know, just the, the, the sort of horror of you know, waiting for something else to happen next. You know, were there more planes? Right. That was the, that was the uncertainty. That right. What targeted? else? What was coming? Ne- and there were, you know, there were there were things that were happening next, which made it even more horrific with the second plane, and then uh, the the, uh, the the Pentagon, and and uh, the plane down in uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, it, it was such a surreal day, um, <clears throat> and uh, you know, it would it does us all well to remember. I think how this country responded both here and obviously militarily as well uh, when when that happened because that was really in my life I think in my lifetime anyway um, uh, I, the first time I really felt that America could be vulnerable to an attack yeah uh, you know just America's geographic location being what it is with with two oceans on both coasts yeah. um, you know we're not necessarily as susceptible to that sort of thing. Uh, at least we didn't think so. Um, I, I think the other thing that I remember most, Bill, is, is as most people who've listened to this know, I grew up in Warwick, um, and I lived in a house that was about three or four streets from the airport. Okay. Um, and so you're growing up as a kid, and you're just used to hearing planes taking off and landing right. You know, all hours of the day and night. It, it's, it's background noise after a while. Sure. It, it's something that doesn't even exist. I guess the thing that I remember most about 9-11 was how quiet it was. When the FAA ordered all flights to be grounded, yeah. just how quiet it was mm-hmm. the rest of the day and, and into the next day. And right. you know, just how eerie that was, that silence. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it was almost like America had been shocked into that silence. Sure. You know, that sort of stunned, mouth open, not really sure how to react, that terror. Yeah. Um, and, and so I guess that was, you know, my own, that, that was probably the, the most tangible thing in my daily life yep. that changed the fact that it was that quiet. Um, you know, I called a, a couple of friends who were working in Manhattan at the time who had gotten jobs in, in the financial industry out of school, yep. um, you know, just to make sure that they were okay. And, you know, finally managed to get through later that afternoon to them because, you know, all, all cell phone circuits were jammed. That's um, right. You know, you, you, you're yep. really struggling to, to communicate with people. Yeah. Um, you know, I was very relieved to hear that, that they were okay. Um, you know, didn't lose anybody personally, thankfully, friends right. or, or family or anybody like that. Um, you know, but just the, 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 sort of, the sort of slow motion way that the day unfolded and and how every minute felt like an hour and and just you know that that anticipation that dread that you had for what was going to happen next i i think that was the biggest thing i took away and and you know like you mentioned when we started this baseball played such a major part i think in in helping new york heal i i think about the home run that mike piazza hit for the mets yeah against the braves um you know that first game back at chase stadium it, it was cathartic in a way uh you know it felt like it was this huge release of emotion from new yorkers um you know and then obviously the yankees make the world series that year against the diamondbacks yeah they're playing game three at home um george w bush decides he wants to throw out the first pitch and mm-hmm. you know i remember thinking he's going to walk to the mound and get shot you know, something something's going to yeah, happen right. here. Like, like he's he's right. insane for the, going out right. in the There's middle. There's too of, many people there. They couldn't they couldn't uh, clamp down on security. Right. You know that that's only a month later, a month yeah. and a half later, and and you're yeah. still in that state of you know something terrible is going to happen. Right. And and it's going to happen on national TV. Yeah. And and it's something I just watched six weeks ago. Sure. You know something else horrible is going to happen. Um, you know, thankfully, obviously. Uh, you know, he went out and, and threw that first pitch without incident, threw a strike right down the middle. And, yeah, there's a great documentary about that, too, and how he was prepared, and he knew how important it was. And he rose to the occasion. He certainly did. The, 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 great, the great backstory that came out of that was, uh, you know, Bush is, is warming up 
in the bowels of the old Yankee Stadium. Yeah. He's in some batting practice tunnel. Um, you know, and he's wearing a bulletproof vest under the jacket right. that he's wearing. So it's it's difficult to throw, let alone yeah. you know, to throw with a bulletproof vest on. Yeah. Uh, and none other than Derek Jeter happens to walk by. The president of the United States, who, who's warming up, playing catch with a Secret Service agent who's going to catch the first pitch. Right. Uh, and <laughs> Derek Jeter, as only he could, uh, walks up and says, you know, Mr. President, how you doing? You know, and they exchange some pleasantries. And mm-hmm. Jeter says to him, you're going to throw it from the mound, right? Because if you <laughs> throw it from down in front, they're going to boo you. That's right. And uh, Bush says, you know, I, I hadn't really thought of that, but I, I guess I'll go to the top of the mound. And, yeah. and then Jeter follows that up with, don't bounce it, because if you bounce it, they're going to boo you. Talk about pressure. Huh? You know, and this is, this is Derek Jeter, shortstop <laughs> right. for the Yankees, yeah. uh, you know, sort of busting the nuggets of, of the president of the United States, yeah. uh, you know, which, which tells you a little bit about the confidence and the makeup of that guy. Um, you know, but Bush goes out there, he walks to the top of the mound, he puts his fist up. And he throws a strike right down the middle. And, yeah. and at that point, you're, you're just watching that. And I, I remember thinking to myself, yeah, damn right. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Damn it right. was a very proud He's moment. not afraid. Right. I shouldn't be afraid. Um, you know, just, just in those actions. And, 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 you know, obviously, you get into what happened later with um, the wars in Afghanistan yeah. and, and, and in Iraq. And, and the fact that there were uh, grievous mistakes made by our country, um, you know, grievous mistakes that, that continue the, to this day, needless sacrifice of, of however many American lives, um, mm-hmm. you know, but just for that moment, you, you felt proud. You felt a little safer, a little better. And, and it's, it, I think it's really important to remember that, that baseball played a role in that. No, it absolutely did. Yeah, it, it did. It, I mean, it was, um, <clears throat> I think for me, and probably for a lot of people, it sort of signaled the return to normalcy a little bit and said, you know, we're Americans and we're sort of getting on with our lives and, and we honored the dead. And, but uh, obviously we, we moved forward and, uh, you know, and hopefully we never forget. You know, every September 11th, I think there are some uh, very touching and uh, compelling and important uh, remembrances of, of that day. And it's, it's hard to it's hard to sort of get your head around now. It's been almost twenty years, you know. And next year is going to be twenty years. Yeah. I, that that's just <clears throat> astonishing. To Absolutely, me. it really Absolutely. is. Well, Bill, uh, thank you again for another uh, Twin Bills podcast. Uh, with the the days are running short here. I'm sure we'll get another couple in by the end of the season. Uh, hopefully, uh, you know you can. Uh, you can make it here and, and uh, not fall asleep at the at the games in the next few weeks because it must be quite the drag going up there and watching this kind of baseball for uh, you know for the last few weeks with players who may not even be around uh, in a year. But um, uh, you know you've been a trooper all all season long for uh, for covering this team and doing it so well. Oh, thank you very much. It, uh, sure. You know, as I as I said to someone the other night on Twitter, uh, you know, I was asked, "How do I watch this every night?" And I said, "It's my job, and I consider myself fortunate to have one in in this current environment." Uh, you know, I'm just happy for my health and for employment. Um, right, but your first season covering the Red Sox was twenty eighteen, was it not? Set the bar pretty high. <laughs> yeah, so, set so, set the bar you know, pretty high. You go from one hundred and four wins and a World Series title to this dreck. You know, right? that's, it's definitely uh, you know not the the twenty eighteen Red Sox. <clears throat> um, you know, but I I think twenty twenty more than any other year. You you really just have to keep things in perspective, and, and if that means you know Zoom interviews at Fenway and no clubhouse and, and no travel, then so be it. Absolutely. We will do this again in another week. Bill, thank you.